This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. You know, for over 15 years, Gowan Canada has focused our deepest respect for science and passion for agriculture to help growers work toward the results they need to grow profitable crops. Herbicide resistance is a growing challenge and chemical rotation is king. Our Muddy Boots approach to understanding crop protection challenges helps us deliver the right solutions for sustainable weed and pest management. To see the full list of products, go to GowanCanada.com. That's GowanCanada.com. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Canada. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Shane Ogilvie. She is a former master's student at the University of Saskatchewan, where she was part of the Department of Soil Science. Shane, welcome to Inputs. Thank you so much for having me. And we are very glad to have you as a part of our Graduate Students Showcase, where we like to take a focus in uh, the wonderful research that many, many students are doing across our country and in the different agriculture departments at different universities. And today we brought Shane to talk about some of her former research as she is a a recent graduate and uh, get more information on what she did over the last few years while she was going through her research. But before we hop into that, Shane, what brought you to the University of Saskatchewan and interested you in doing a postgraduate degree? So before I I went to the U of S, I was working as a crop consultant. And as much as I really loved being in the field and working with farmers, I felt like there was so much more out there to learn. And so through a colleague, uh, I was connected with Dr. Rich Farrell at the U of S. And he had told me about this project that he was working on, and uh, he was looking at reducing greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizer. And it was that specific project that really influenced me to go to the U of S because it was perfectly and directly aligned with my interests in balancing agronomy and environmental stewardship. So I had actually been accepted to another university out of country as well, but I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan and I felt connected to that Western Canadian agriculture. So I was really excited about the opportunity. That always seems nice, you know, when the connection gets made between what your actual passions are, you get to stay close at home and you find just the perfect project to kind of bridge all the gap together. That's awesome. You mentioned that your your research focus was going to be somewhere in the fertilizer stewardship regime. So your thesis was entitled Evaluating the Nitrous Oxide Mitigation Potential of Enhanced Efficiency Nitrogen Fertilizer Products in Saskatchewan Irrigated Cereal Production System. That is a mouthful, but reading over your thesis, what the main kind of focus is, is looking at these enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizers. So first, what are EENFs and how are they incorporated into farming operations? Yeah, that definitely is a mouthful. And uh, enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizer itself is also a mouthful. So um, I probably will stumble a few times as, as we go through this. But basically what these products are is they delay the release of nutrients so that those nutrients are available when the crop needs them most. So most nitrogen fertilizer needs are applied for a crop year in a single application, whether that be in the fall or in the spring prior to seeding or right at seeding or, or even in crop. So this fertilizer, when it's applied and when it's unprotected, 
rapidly becomes plant available. But if that crop isn't mature enough and big enough to be taking in large amounts of nutrients yet, that nitrogen can be lost as a variety of different byproducts, one of which is nitrous oxide, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. So not only is this an environmental issue, but also no farmer wants to spend money on nitrogen just to have it lost and, and not be feeding their crop. So these products are used as a mitigation of risk to losing that nitrogen. So it's essentially an insurance package on your nitrogen. And um, these products, they can be applied as a, as a standalone product. So ESN or SuperU, for example, but then also our conventional nitrogen sources such as urea, UAN, or anhydrous ammonia can also be treated with products like nitrogen stabilizers to slow the release of, of those products. So in my opinion, these products should be considered kind of a, a low-hanging fruit when it comes to wanting to improve your nutrient efficiency on farm because they don't require significant investment to equipment or, or anything to implement. You just buy the product and, and you can apply it as you would your conventional sources. Right. And just kind of going into the, I guess, the diversity of the products, you've touched on the different nitrogen sources that they kind of use. So do they do the same job once they're in the soil or what's the different kind of modes of action that some of these products use? No, they are not all the same. And I think that's the single most important thing to understand about these products. And when you're trying to choose which product works best for your farm, you need to consider how you are applying your nitrogen and what loss mechanisms you might be targeting and, and then determine which product or, or which enhanced efficiency product fits your operation. So there are two distinct groups. The first are your nitrogen stabilizers. And so these products slow the release of nitrogen by inhibiting or temporarily blocking the organisms in the soil that are responsible for transforming that fertilizer or organic material into a plant available form of nitrogen. So these nitrogen stabilizers can then be further broken down into urease and nitrification inhibitors. So these two products are similar in the sense that they inhibit those organisms to delay the nitrogen release, but they act on different organisms at different steps in that nitrogen transformation pathway from fertilizer to plant available forms. So your urease inhibitors, they temporarily inhibit the urease enzyme, which is responsible for converting urea into ammonium. And then your nitrification inhibitors, they take on that next step in the nitrogen pathway, and they act on nitrosomonas bacteria, which is responsible for converting your ammonium to nitrite, and then later nitrate, which is a plant available form. And so that's the, the first category of your nitrogen stabilizers. And then the second category is your controlled release products. And these would include your polymer coated ureas such as ESN. And these products, they slow the release through a physical barrier, whereas the stabilizers is a, a biological barrier or a chemical barrier. And uh, this is a, a physical barrier, which is surrounding that fertilizer prill. And those polymer-coated ureas, for example, it's a, a semi-permeable carbon-based polymer. So water essentially goes into the polymer, dissolves the fertilizer inside, but it doesn't release the nutrients or it releases them slowly as that polymer breaks down. Wow. Those sound like they were well-made and they obviously had a lot of thought and process put into them. And obviously the, the growers themselves have to put a lot of thought and process in understanding the factors that might influence them to start using one of these different kind of products. So in terms of that, 
what should a grower kind of understand or know about the conditions of their field if they're considering using one of these EENFs? Yeah, for sure. Like I mentioned, the most important part of choosing these enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizer products for your own individual farm is to first determine which of the three nitrogen loss mechanisms is most likely to occur. So those are volatilization, nitrification or denitrification, and then leaching. So in order to determine those, you would be you know, looking at how your products are being applied. So are you banning them? Are you broadcasting them? Then you'd also want to think about when you're applying them. So are you applying them in the fall or in the spring or in season? And then you also want to consider the environmental factors like your location. What is your rainfall? What is your climate or what is your temperature like? What kind of soil do you have? Does it have lots of clay or is it sandier? And this might all seem very daunting, but there are lots of certified crop advisors, professional agrologists for our designated agronomists out there who would absolutely love to talk about nitrogen loss on your farms. So once you determine that first step of what loss mechanism you are uh, trying to reduce, then you can choose a product that specifically targets that loss mechanism. So if you don't match this exactly correct, nothing bad is going to happen, but you're not maximizing the investment of protecting your fertilizer. So that's why you want to go through that that first step. So for example, if you're broadcasting your nitrogen, you are probably more susceptible to loss through volatilization or gassing off. And so a urease inhibitor is likely the best product in, in that scenario. Whereas if you're fall banding, then you're probably looking at more losses from denitrification during snow melt in the following spring. And so then a nitrification inhibitor might be your best product there. And then if you are fall broadcasting, which is a high risk for all nitrogen loss mechanisms, you might want to use a dual inhibitor or product that contains both of those products. So again, product selection might seem a little daunting there as well, but there are really five key active ingredients. So your urease inhibitors are typically going to contain NBPT and your nitrification inhibitors are going to contain either DCD, nitropyrin, pronitrodine, or DMPP. So that kind of breaks it down a little bit further as well. And thank God for those crop consultants that can really help you out. If everything you you said just sounds like right over your head, I'm sure, like you said, that the they're all chomping at the bit to talk about nitrogen loss on your in your grow. So, the last thing that I just want to talk about before we even hop into what you did over these last couple of years is one thing that kind of stood out from your thesis was talking about the four R nutrient management categories. Now for anyone that needs a refresher, could you just touch briefly on what those categories are and why it is so important to consider them and make sure that you're implementing them as a part of your fertilization plan? Yeah, you bet. So four R nutrient management is a globally recognized science-based approach to fertilizer management that involves applying the right source of fertilizer at the right rate, at the right time, and in the right place. So those are those are your four R's. And this framework is supported by economic, environmental, and social goals. And using this framework has been proven to increase your crop yields, improve your profitability, while minimizing the risk to the environment from your fertilizer. So that right source component is the type of fertilizer that is applied. So urea, UAN, and hydrous ammonia, these would be considered conventional nitrogen sources. Your enhanced efficiency fertilizer products are also considered sources of fertilizer. So ESN would be a source. A urease inhibitor treated urea would also be a source. 
And one of the goals of using the right source is to choose the right form of nutrient to improve nutrient use efficiency, and then reduce those losses based on your practices or, or your region. The right rate is how much fertilizer is being applied or should be applied. So it takes into account first your target crop yield, but then secondly, what is your soil providing that crop? So what is available there already or what will become available through breakdown of organic matter or whatever. And then the difference between those or what you need to top up is what you put in from fertilizer. And so by taking all of these into account, we're ensuring that we're applying enough to grow the crop that we need without applying too much, which is costly and can be lost to the environment. The right time is when the fertilizer is applied or when the nutrients are released. So the most common application timings are your fall, uh, spring, whether prior to planting or at planting or in crop. But we also have to consider our enhanced efficiency fertilizers in this category because they delay the release of nutrients compared to those sources. So you might apply it at one time, but then you expect that release a little bit later. And so the goal here is to match nutrient release with that nutrient uptake in season. And then lastly, we have the right place, which is the placement of the fertilizer, uh, either compared to the soil surface. So a broadcast application is on top of the soil, a banded application is below the soil surface, but also in relation to the location of the seed. So seed placed fertilizer versus a mid row band application or a side band. So the goal of the right place is to ensure that those crop roots are able to access nutrients when they need them, where they need them, and, and then also reduce losses. So um, my research looked at both source and, and timing in, in 4R nutrient management. Right. So let's just hop in now that we've laid down a very good background information of just what ENFs are and kind of one of the main pillar points to actually being able to use these and start to think about where you're going to apply them, how you're going to apply them. So Shane, could you just go over what your main objective from your thesis was? Yeah, so the, the main objective of the thesis was to determine if these enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizer products could be used to reduce nitrous oxide emissions, uh, and specifically under irrigated spring wheat in central Saskatchewan. So in addition to this, we wanted to quantify emissions from these fertilizer products in, in specific production systems, which was irrigated spring wheat, and then evaluate the differences between fall and spring application of these products. And then lastly, we wanted to determine if these products, in fact, delayed release of nutrients as they are marketed or intended to. So does the mode of action actually do what we would expect it underground on those things that we can't necessarily see? Right. You you want to believe what you're reading on the product label and make sure that it it does what it say it should do. Exactly. So you, you, you touched on that you're doing this in Saskatchewan and in irrigated wheat. But uh, how else did you go about doing all of the questions and tasks that you just mentioned in your thesis? Yeah, so specifically, this study took place just south of Broderick, Saskatchewan, which is about an hour south of Saskatoon. And we made all of our observations in, in irrigated spring wheat, specifically AC Carberry. And it was seeded on canola stubble. And both of our crop years were 2016 and 2017. And, um, and so our first nitrogen application was made in the fall of 2015 ahead of that 2016 crop. 
All of our seeding operations were completed by the Prairie Agricultural Machinery Institute or PAMI. And then the infield operations were um, either done by the team at the U of S or the CSIDC and Outlook was uh, a huge help as well. And uh, center pivot irrigation, in-crop herbicide and fungicides were all applied. And we balanced nutrients with potassium sulfate and triple superphosphate as well. So that's kind of the general background of it. And then the, the meat of it, the nitrogen fertilizer applications. So um, all of our nitrogen was applied in a mid-row band. And we soil tested ahead of creating our, our rates. So we applied 109 pounds per acre of N in the first year and 88 pounds per acre of N in the second year. And we were evaluating both fall and spring applications. So um, those fall applications were made in, in late October after the soils had cooled. And the spring applications were made right at planting in, in the mid-row band uh, in, the, in the beginning of May. Our, our sources, we had two conventional nitrogen sources, so urea and then anhydrous ammonia, and then we had five enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizer sources. So the urea-based products were ESN, which is a polymer-coated urea. We had Lemus, which is a dual-action urease inhibitor, so it contains both NBPT and NPPT, and Entrench, which is a nitrification inhibitor, and it contains nitropyrin. And then SuperU, which is a dual inhibitor, it contains both a urease and a nitrification inhibitor, and those are NBPT and DCD. And then we had one enhanced product with anhydrous ammonia, which was NSERV, which contains nitropyrin. And we um, inserted plant root simulator probes into the mid-row fertilizer bands to look if those products were working how we thought they should work based on the mode of action of that product. We used those ion exchange membranes. So basically the nutrients flow through it, it catches it, and, and then we can evaluate you know, that release over time. And um, we also, in, in addition to you know, seeing if these products worked, we wanted to see if there was any release of nutrients over the winter months when the soil was frozen. So typically we wouldn't anticipate that there would be a lot of nutrient release in the winter because it's microbially driven. And so those microbes aren't necessarily doing much when it's frozen. And so that was the, the PRS probe component, component. And then lastly, we looked at greenhouse gas emissions. So we inserted plastic chambers, we call them, into the field, both on and off the fertilizer band. Imagine a shoebox without a lid or a bottom. That's basically what this looked like. So when we were collecting samples, those, those shoeboxes stayed in the field all year. But when we went out to collect samples, we put a, a lid on and then we would collect air out of the headspace of that chamber. So we'd go at intervals of 17, 34 and 51 minutes. And then we could calculate the rate of, of change or accumulation of nitrous oxide emissions and other greenhouse gases into that headspace. So we removed this by using a syringe. And so we pulled the air out and then we injected that air into little vials. Then we took those back to the University of Saskatchewan and measured what was in those tubes using gas chromatography. And uh, those samples were collected throughout the year at regular intervals between March and December, basically. And um, then we did additional sample events when we expected more emissions to occur. So that would be a snowmelt, right after the fertilizer applications or right after it rains. And uh, yeah, we followed the emissions for a full year after each application. Wow. So it sounds like you had your hands full. 
over those uh, couple study years there. So taking everything that you just said, what did you find? So first, I think I should just talk about the rainfall that we saw in both seasons because it, it does greatly affect how these products work. So our growing season precipitation in the first field season in 2016 were 63% greater than the 30-year average. And then in the second field season, 2017, they were 41% below the 30-year average. So we kind of had both things happening. But then another key thing that we saw was that the rainfall between harvest and freeze up in, in both years was greater than the average by 64 and 105 percent of average. So going into winter when the soils were freezing, there was a lot of soil moisture there. And that's important for uh, something that I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit, but thought I should touch on that first quickly. So the, the PRS Pro part of the research or where we were looking at, you know, do these products do what they, they say? They, they did provide really good insight into that below ground nutrient release and um, that conversion from fertilizer N to plant available N. So each of the enhanced efficiency products evaluated in the study affected that bioavailable or that plant available nutrient supply of ammonium and, and nitrate exactly the way that we anticipated. So what I mean by this is the polymer coated urea and the urease inhibitors, which were Lemus and, and SuperU, they significantly reduced the total ammonium supply. So that makes sense because that polymer coating is blocking all transformations. And then the urease inhibitor is blocking that transformation from urea to ammonium. So they did exactly that. And another interesting thing that we saw is the, the nitrification inhibitors. They actually increased ammonium supply a little bit, which also makes sense because it's blocking that next step. And so we see this accumulation of ammonium before it can go into nitrate when that when that nitrification inhibitor wears off. So, so that was really exciting to see. And then when we look at nitrate supply, we saw that the nitrification inhibitors had the greatest reduction in total nitrate supply, which makes sense. It's the, the step that's closest to that, whereas the lemus or the urease inhibitor and the ESN, that polymer-coated urea, they, they still reduce that nitrate supply, but not quite as much as the nitrification inhibitors. So that was great. They, they did exactly what they that we thought they would do, and um, that was very positive to see. The last thing that we saw with the PRS probes is that there was some nitrogen transformation that occurred over the winter months. And so we we don't know when that exactly occurred because you're just collecting one, one probe after the whole winter season. But it, it was interesting to see that there was some biological activity or transformation of nitrogen when the soils were frozen. So so that's that was another thing we saw with, with that. Kind of moving into the the greenhouse gas emissions that we saw. So we did find that up to 75% of nitrous oxide emissions from a full year of, of following them after a fertilizer application occurred during the spring melt period. So basically from snow melt to planting. So two really key themes come out of this. First is we probably want to protect those fall fertilizer applications because um, they are susceptible to loss in, in that snowmelt period. But also we wanna make sure that we're applying the right rate of fertilizer in the spring so that there's not a bunch of nitrogen left over after harvest that can then be lost the following spring. And part of that was probably how wet it was going into freeze up from that, that post-harvest moisture as well. So that was an interesting finding. 
and into the meat of these products, did they work? The spring applications of these enhanced efficiency products were much more effective and consistent in reducing nitrous oxide emissions than when they were applied in the fall. And this makes sense. There's a lot happening between October and May, and we don't necessarily fully understand the dynamics of how those products work in the fall because there are freeze-thaw events that are happening during this period. Uh, we had a late freeze-up with very little snow cover. So how did that affect it? And uh, we also saw really warm or sunny spring days that would probably thaw the top inch of that soil where you'd have some losses, but then it would freeze again at night. So because nitrous oxide production in soils is so strongly influenced by microbial activity, the warming and, and cooling probably influenced how that fall application works. And uh, when we look at how each of the individual products actually performed, the fall applied SuperU, which is that dual inhibitor, and fall applied Entrench, both reduced nitrous oxide emissions in the second field season only, so less consistent, by 77 and 86% compared to urea. So that was a, a huge finding. But then the, the spring applied enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizers, SuperU, Entrench, and Lemus, they reduced emissions between 78 and 99% in both field seasons. So huge emission reductions and, and more consistent between both, both years. So this is incredibly important because we observed that single action inhibitors, uh, a single action urease inhibitor and a single action nitrification inhibitor reduced emissions similarly to a dual inhibitor. So that was a really key, key finding. And uh, that is supportive of, of those single action inhibitors being used on the prairies to reduce nitrous oxide emissions. And then ESN and NSERV, we did see reduced emissions when they were spring applied in the second field season, but not, not the first. And they reduced emissions by 43 and 68% in that second season. So again, very significant emission reductions from, from those products. And so in addition to highlighting the absolute emissions that were reduced by those by up to 99%, more importantly, we observed reductions in our yield scaled emissions. So, and in most cases, these yield scaled emissions from the enhanced efficiency products were similar to the unfertilized check. So we observed the same amount of emissions in the unfertilized plots as we did the enhanced efficiency treated plots. So we are producing more food with less emissions. And at the end of the day, that is the goal. I think out of everything that you just said, that last little bit is the key takeaway here. That is incredible that you were able to find just very similar amounts of emissions from an unfertilized field that just had nothing actually applied to it. That is amazing. And first off, congratulations. That that must have felt so nice actually looking at all, all the data after all those years of kind of doing all this. So that's absolutely amazing, Shane. So going over, again, everything that you just said, I hate to kind of put this all into just uh, a few short sentences here, but what kind of outstanding questions that you have from doing all of this work and where do you see that this research should go into the future here? 
Yeah, for sure. So the the first thing is that our, our our fall applications need to be studied further. We don't we don't understand exactly what is happening with these products when they're being applied in the fall. And so we definitely need to do more research on on fall applications of these products on different soil types, different cropping systems and different different application timings to fully understand the emission reduction or how they can be used in an emission reduction strategy. Another big question that I have is how does variable rate play into this? So nitrous oxide emissions are greatly influenced by soil moisture. So how do you manage or even measure nitrous oxide emissions or the reduction potential of these products on fields with greater variability? Another, another question is, is how do different products with different concentrations of active ingredients or different formulations of those, those products, how do those influence the efficacy or the loss reduction potential? Another thing is we're applying a ton of ammonium sulfate and monoammonium phosphate. So these, these other fertilizer products that contain nitrogen that we're not protecting. So Today, we don't have an affordable and easy to, easy to use product that can be applied to those. But in the future, will something like that be developed? And then uh, lastly, we didn't consider economics in this study at all. And so ultimately, these products cost money. And in order for us to have broad adoption of these technologies, we need agronomic, environmental, and economic studies evaluating the, the benefits of these products. And I don't think I specifically referenced it, but we didn't see yield increases from the, the different fertilizer products, but we did see yield increases from spring versus fall applications just in general. And so, you know, these products are great and can be used in, in part of a 4R nutrient management plan, but you need to consider all of the 4Rs to really get the best best bang for your buck. Wasn't that like the most perfect thing from finishing a research question or a thesis, right? You close the door on some of the questions that you very well answered, but then you're also opening up so many more. So hopefully someone takes on that mantle and starts to look at, especially the the economic value of uh, kind of completing maybe a, a full analysis of these ENFs uh, in irrigated wheat systems. So Shane, thank you for joining us today on Inputs. This was fantastic. Where can people find you if they want to talk more about uh, what you did in this thesis or just get more of an idea of what ENFs might look uh, at for a Saskatchewan grower or a grower anywhere in the in the country? Yeah, you bet. So um, I can I'll, I can share my my email with you, and um, I'm also on Twitter. And I'm I'm currently working at Richardson Pioneer as the director of Ag Innovation and Stewardship. So you can you can find me online probably, and I can share all that with you as well. Awesome. Well, again, Shane, thank you for joining us on Inputs. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To hear more great research and perspectives from industry experts, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts or catch up on past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.